Well, this morning we continue our series through the book of Ephesians. And uh, as we're going through this book, um, the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, um, a place in sort of northeast Turkey, uh, they're really concentrating on what we should believe as Christians. They're called the creedenda. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 have been described as the agenda. In the light of what you believe, this is how you should behave. This is how you should be different. This is how you should be distinctive. These are the things that should characterize your life if you belong to the community of Christ. About 10 years ago, there was a website set up called the Experience Project. And this website was like the sort of reverse of Facebook. Facebook is founded upon the principle that you befriend people. And you befriend people that know you and that uh, know, you know them and they know you. And you share your experiences or not based on that friendship. The experience project was quite the reverse of that, quite deliberately. In the experience project, people were asked to contribute experiences. And they were deliberately anonymous. There were no names on the experience project. And the website lasted for about 10 years till last year, from 2007 until 2016. And it had over 67 million visitors. And what this website did was it asked people to come round a particular experience. And for friendships, relationships that were anonymous, to come out of these shared experiences. So there are asked questions like, what does loneliness feel like? Or who do you want to spend time with? Or what's your favourite pastime? And if you answered those questions in a particular way, you were then put in touch with people who had shared your experience. It was the experience project. In one post, readers were asked to respond to the following statement. I prefer darkness over light. I prefer darkness over light. A young woman going by the screen name Beyond Repair, which is how many of us feel, offered a particularly honest and insightful response. She said this. I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what's coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from what you were and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. It's quite chilling, isn't it? Comforting on one level, but also deeply chilling at another. Because the reality is that there are few things more powerful than being in a completely dark countryside. Living as most of us do in a city, we recognize that light pollution often gets in the way of us being able to see some things. So, for example, I might be on Facebook and I see that Grant Bullock, again, for the 45th time this year, has seen the Northern Lights. 
I don't know how he does it, but Grant Bullock, if you want to see the Northern Lights, if you've never seen the Northern Lights, just follow Grant Bullock, wherever, physically, not on Facebook, just physically go wherever Grant Bullock, who's a member of this church, goes, and you will see the Northern Lights, because he's always posting photographs of the Northern Lights, irrespective of where he is. It's just remarkable. He's able to see them all the time. But the paradox is that we can see things in the darkness that we can't see in the light, and vice versa. Now, light and darkness, darkness and light, is a repeating metaphor in the New Testament. If you look, for example, at the Gospel of John, light and darkness run right through the Gospel of John. It's the Gospel where Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. John describes Jesus as the light who is coming into the world in John chapter 1. But it's not only found in the Gospel of John. It's used again and again also by the Apostle Paul, the person who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. It's there in verse 8 of the passage that Morag read for us a few moments ago from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul writes this, For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Know what Paul doesn't write. He doesn't say you were in darkness. And he doesn't say you are now in the light. He actually goes further than that. He says, before you came to know Christ, you were darkness. It's very stark. Before you came to know Christ, Paul says, you were darkness. You were in darkness. But more than simply being in darkness, you were darkness. This isn't very popular in our society, in our culture. We don't like to think of things in these stark terms. But according to the New Testament, that's the reality of our spiritual state. Once, before you became Christ, you were darkness. Now, you are in Christ. You are in the light, yes, and the light is in you. But more than that, Paul says, you are light. You were darkness, you are light. That Alpha Course member yesterday who gave their life to Christ, in terms of the uh, terms that Paul was writing, before they gave their life to Christ, they were darkness, but they are now light. Now, Paul is deliberately using these two extremes to highlight the difference that should be in us who claim to be followers of Christ. That if we claim that Jesus is our Lord and our Saviour, if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we claim to be in relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, then once we were darkness, but now we are light. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus looks at his disciples and not only reveals himself to be the light of the world, but then says to them, you are salt and you are light you 
are light. If you know Christ, you are light. The light is in you, and the light needs to shine through you, but you are light, Jesus says, and the Apostle Paul says. Now remember, Paul is trying to get across to this church in Ephesus and to the church down the centuries, including the church in Edinburgh, what it means for them to lead distinctively different lives in Ephesus, but also in Edinburgh. What does it mean for us in 2017 to lead distinctively different Christ-following lives here in this city, in this culture, in this time? And he begins then to explain and unpack what it is for these early Christians in Ephesus and ourselves here in Edinburgh to lead these distinctively different lives. See where he begins, though. We didn't have these two verses read because we included it in last week's passage. Chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with you striving to be a better, nicer person. It doesn't begin with you wanting to do a self-improvement course. It doesn't begin with you trying to be better than you already are. It begins with one thing, Paul says. It begins with knowing how deeply you are loved. Knowing how much value, how much worth God puts upon every single human life. As we take the bread and the wine this morning, we remember again how much God loves us. And that's the starting point for Paul. He said, if you're going to lead these distinctively different lives, it's not about rules, it's not about regulations, but it comes from the foundation of knowing that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you are valued, that you are forgiven. And knowing how much you're loved, then that love should make a difference in your life. Knowing that you don't have to struggle for for God's acceptance or God's forgiveness, never mind other people's or your own, but knowing that you are truly loved and valued and accepted and forgiven, then lead different lives, Paul says. Know how much you are loved and that love being expressed in Christ being willing to die for you. But then in verses 3 to 7, he goes on to describe, well, what does the difference look like? What does it mean for a Christ follower to lead a distinctively different life? And he's utterly realistic, and he's utterly practical. And it isn't particularly about being religious, what we might think of as being religious or spiritual. Because he says... There should be no sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed, no obscenity, no foolish talk, and no coarse jokes. It's pretty down-to-earth. It's pretty everyday stuff. It's pretty realistic, and it's pretty practical. That if you want to lead a distinctively different life, it isn't about singing better hymns or better worship songs or praying longer prayers or knowing more of the Bible. 
It's actually about how we live our lives every single day of every single week, of every single month, of every single year. It's about how we are in the workplace, about how we are when we're with our family. It's about how we are in our friendship groups. It's how we are if we're at the gym or at the rugby club. No obscenity, no coarse jokes, no foolish talk, no greed, no impurity, no sexual immorality. It's easy sometimes to think that the situation, the context that Paul was writing to was somehow very different from the society that you and I live in. Now, of course, on one level, his society was very different. They didn't have 20 mile an hour speed limits in Ephesus. Would that they could get up to 20 miles an hour. Maybe there are some similarities. But actually, in some ways, the society that Paul was writing to in Ephesus was very similar, if not worse, than the society that you and I live in. Sexual immorality was rife in Ephesus. It was rife in the pagan world. Ephesus itself was a sex-mad city. The Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, employed 25,000 cultic prostitutes whose job was to have sex with the worshippers as literally the climax of their act of worship. So everything revolved around sex. People were used and abused for sex in often worse ways than they are in our society and culture. Sex was central to pagan worship. Even worse than that, there were a group of people known as Gnostics. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And, and these people who infiltrated the church as, as much as the rest of society said that they were the spiritually enlightened one. Gnosticism was all about things that were secret and hidden. And only the elite few knew what it was to be really, really spiritual. And the Gnostics, influenced by Greek thinkers and writers, said that actually bodily sins could be committed without damaging the soul. Deeply attractive. Bodily sins don't affect the soul. The soul, your spirit, is what really matters. You see how it's influenced, actually, lots of Christian, Christianity as well. Bodily sins didn't count. It was what happened on the spiritual level that was really, really important. The enlightened, as they were described, could do what they wanted with their bodies. Those who weren't enlightened, those who were described as being in the dark, had to practice restraint. Now, do you see what Paul does? Paul flips that on its head. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you knew Christ, you were darkness. And now you know Christ and Christ knows you. You are light. He flips what the Gnostics were saying on its head and says, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, if you know Jesus, then you are light. But that light means that you live life in a certain way. Verse 6, he says, let nobody fool or deceive you. And he's talking about the Gnostics, but he's also talking about many of the beliefs that existed in Ephesus, and if we're honest, many of the ideas that exist in our society today. Let no one fool or deceive you, verse 6. Casual sex is not 
casual. Christians are to be distinctively different in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we think and act around the whole area of sexuality, in the way that we think and act in the whole area of money. And Paul is utterly practical and says, you should even be different and distinctive in the way that you think and use humor. No coarse jokes. No impurity, no greed, no sexual immorality. But do you see that he runs them all on the same level? It's not that sexual sin is worse than sins to do with money or with greed or with the stuff that comes out of our mouth. The consequences of sexual sin may be worse and maybe more long damaging, but, but actually it's all a level playing field. There's no league table of sin. Greed is as bad as sexual immorality, Paul is saying. And there are consequences. Verse 6. He speaks about God's wrath. Now, sometimes there's the idea about God's wrath, which again is a very unpopular idea in some circles in, in the church, even to the extent of certain churches deciding not to sing certain hymns because they speak about the wrath of God. And we're uncomfortable with the idea, perhaps. But the idea has come about in the church that somehow the wrath of God is, is just reserved at the end of time. We were looking at the seven o'clock service about the second coming and the return of Jesus and, and what that might mean. And often the wrath of God is associated with Jesus' second coming. Our favorite theologian, Tom Wright, my new best friend, um, he actually says this. He says, God's wrath is not just a punishment waiting for people at the end of the present age, but is now built into creation itself. Every time you mention the words, every time an off-color story or joke passes your lips, you defile yourself and shift your thinking and imagination towards the way that leads to darkness and death. And what he's saying is that actually decay is one of the consequences of the fall. Death is one of the consequences of the fall. But even when we, as it were, step back into the darkness, and what comes out of our mouth is dark rather than light, then we defile ourselves. We demean ourselves or other people in the way that we talk about them or to them. Wrath actually is there in creation itself. Well, how do we live as children of light? How do we live as children of light? He goes on to describe it in verses 8 to 20. I remember meeting a Christian um, about 30, 20, 30 years ago, who'd been a missionary in East Africa. Um, and he'd been in the East Africa in the 1970s and 1980s. And he spoke about the East, what was called the East African Revival. It was an amazing move of the Holy Spirit in the 1920s and 30s. And it moved through nations like Rwanda and Uganda and Tanzania and Kenya and deeply, deeply affected the church in, in large swathes of, of East Africa. But in the 1970s and 1980s, 
there was still a sort of hangover from these revival times of the 1920s and 30s. And David Lee, the missionary I was talking to, uh, said that even in the present day, as it was then, Christians in these churches that had been affected by the East African revival would greet each other in a particular way. They would look at each other, they would shake hands with each other, and then something else would happen. They wouldn't simply say jambo, which is sort of Swahili for hello, they would say something else. They would look at each other with their hands held, they would then give each other eye contact, and they would look at one another and ask each other this question. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Imagine turning to the person next to you. I'm not going to get you to do it. But imagine if I asked you now just to turn to the person next to you, to take their hand and to get eye contact with them. And to look into each other's eyes which had been described as the window of the soul, and to look one another in the eye and say, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Now, without the spirit that moved in an incredible way during the 20s and 30s, what was left was a great residual feeling of guilt. And I would imagine that would be most of our reactions this morning if we did turn to each other and, and said, Neil, are you walking in the light? Maybe a bit less light after yesterday. We won't go there. It's too painful. But that's the level of accountability that these East African Christians had to one another. Neil would then get the chance to look at me and say, Dave, are you walking in the light? That's what it means to live as children of light. To walk in the light. And to keep each other accountable. Now the reality is that all of us are a mixture of light and darkness. Despite Paul's description that once we were darkness and now we are light. I don't know about you, but I spend most of my time with probably, if I'm honest, most of the time there trying to be in the kingdom of light but edging towards the darkness a lot and what comes out of my mouth and what comes through my head and my actions often show that maybe i've got an inclination still towards darkness rather than light and the difficulty of speaking on these verses is that it's very very easy for people to feel very very guilty and that is actually what happened in, in large swathes of the church in East Africa. People felt very, 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 very guilty. Because if you look at one and each other every day, and that's what these East African Christians did, every day, every time you met somebody, if every day you, you're asking one another, are you walking in the light? 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 That starts to wear you down after a while because you just go, I'm not walking in the light. I'm not walking in the light. And you become more and more conscious of the fact that you're not walking in the light. The only way that we can live as children of light, Paul does describe though in verse 18. He says, don't get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
The only way that any of us can live the lives that God wants us to live is if we're filled with the Spirit. Is if the Spirit of God, the power of God, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and me. And that should take away the guilt. Knowing how much we're deeply loved and recognizing that of ourselves we can't do it, we need to come to God and say, please fill me every single day. And you may be familiar with the fact that in verse 18, it is a particular tense that's used in the Greek of the New Testament. And it's a tense that we don't have in the English language. It's, called a, it's described as a continuous present imperative. And in essence, what Paul is saying is don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Go on be, being filled with the Spirit. Go on be being filled with the Spirit. Go on be being filled with the Spirit. Go on be, be being filled with the Spirit. Go on be being filled with the Spirit. Go on be, be being filled with the Spirit. Go on 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 be being filled. It's a continuous present imperative but it's not something you do it's something that you ask God to do to you go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit and how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit well again it's not some of the things that down the years have come to be known as a test of whether someone is filled with the Spirit in some Pentecostal churches one of the signs of being filled with the Spirit is, is speaking in tongues. That's not actually one of the signs that Paul uses here. Paul doesn't focus on spiritual gifts as a sign of being filled with the Spirit. What he does focus on is, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yes, there are some more overtly religious or spiritual signs... Corporate, joyful, song-filled, thankful lives described in verses 19 to 20. What Martin was encouraging us with at the beginning when you come together and speak to each other with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Remind each other of who God is. Remind each other what God has done. Remind each other what God has done in Christ. Remind each other how much you're loved. Remind each other because we forget who God is and what he's done. But others are less overtly spiritual or religious, but still distinctive nevertheless. It was a few years ago that I realized that there's a link in the way in which Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 with then what happens in the second half of chapter 5. We divide our English Bibles up into these chapter headings. These chapter headings, headings and the way in which they're divided into the paragraphs that we have in front of us are not there in the original. Please, can I make a plea? Morag didn't do it this morning. But when we come to read passages of scripture, please don't read what other people have put in as editorial descriptions of what's about to come next. Because it's not there. So this one is divided, it stops at the end of verse 20, starts again in verse 21, and above it is instructions for Christian households. That's not there. That's an editorial addition. The way it's divided up between verse 20 and verse 21 is not there. 
What Paul is actually saying is that one of the proofs, one of the demonstrations of being filled with the Spirit of God is that our relationship should be distinctively different. That there should be mutual submission in marriage. That the way in which we relate to each other in the workplace or as parents to children should be radically and distinctively different. And these are signs of being filled with the Spirit. We'll look at them in the weeks to come. But he's saying it's the way in which you live your life. Whether you're more joyful, whether you're more loving, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, or more, have more self-control. Whether your relationships are characterized by mutual submission. Whether it's parent-child, whether it's boss and, and, and employee, whether it's husbands and wives, your lives should be distinctively different by being mutually submissive. Because that wasn't how relationships worked in the ancient world. And Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, if, if your lives are going to be distinctively different, they have to be lives filled with joy, lives filled with peace, Lives filled with patience, lives filled with goodness, lives filled with gentleness, lives filled with self-control and characterized by mutually submitting relationships in the workplace and in the home. I was very struck that both in verse 4 and verse 20, Paul speaks about the importance of living and leading lives that are thankful. Thankful lives. When someone thinks about your life, when someone thinks about my life, is thankfulness or gratitude a description that they would use about your life or mine? Henry Nouwen once described what it was like to live a thankful life. He said this, To be grateful for the good things that happen in our lives is easy. But to be grateful for all of our lives, the good as well as the bad, the moments of joy as well as the moments of sorrow, the successes as well as the failures, the rewards as well as the rejections, that requires hard spiritual work. Still, we're only truly grateful when we can say thank you to all that has brought us to the present moment. As long as we keep dividing our lives between events and people we would like to remember and those we would rather forget, we cannot claim the fullness of our beings as a gift of God to be grateful for. Let's not be afraid to look at everything that has brought us to where we are now and trust that we will soon see in it the guiding hand of a loving God. So a simple challenge for you and for me this morning. How filled with thanks is your life? How thankful are you? How grateful are you? Maybe it's a discipline that you want to, to ask God to help you to practice during Lent, perhaps, to become more filled with thanks. How about on the hour, every hour, taking 20 seconds to stop each day and give thanks for something? To give thanks for something that God has done or to give thanks for something that's really difficult and to say, Lord, I still trust you. Thankfulness should be a characteristic of our lives. 
This is a table of thankfulness. That's what the word Eucharist means. It's one of the descriptions, titles that's used to describe what we call Holy Communion. Eucharist in the Greek is thanksgiving. This is a table of thanksgiving. So our lives should be characterized by thanksgiving for the good and the bad and the ugly. Giving thanks in all circumstances, not necessarily for all circumstances, but giving thanks in all circumstances. How do we do it? We do it by go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you need to be more thankful, if you need to be more peaceful, if you need more gentleness in your life, more kindness in your life, more self-control in your life, you're not going to achieve that by being a better person, by being a nicer person. This isn't about sort of Christian mindfulness or self-improvement. It's about recognizing who we are and saying, Lord, please help me. Please fill me. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning. Please fill me with your power this morning so that my life might be a life of light, that I might live as a child of the light.